0: If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in the final week of a four-week series we're calling Rewired, Intentional Practices for Spiritual Health. And what I'd like to do as we start is to just review a couple of 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 meta-themes or overarching observations that we have made over the last couple of weeks. The first one is the one you're probably most familiar with. I've said it every single week in the exact same way. Everything is spiritual. And all this means is that we do not have compartmentalized lives. The world affects us spiritually. The things we do affect our lives. And sometimes this is actually wonderful and great, but other times it can be um, insidious even, um, in that the, the entire kind of span of the soup that we swim in affects how we lean into even the concept of spirituality and of our faith and our religion. And because of that, we can often lean into the idea of growing in a relationship with God in unhealthy ways. We can lean into that relationship, not really as a relationship, but sort of as the second observation, almost more contractually, as if it is um, something performative that we have to do. If I can do enough for God to get him to notice me, then he will return that work, that labor, with good things, with his presence, with his blessing, with whatever. And uh, that is not at all what we see in Scripture. What we actually see in Scripture is uh, not a contract, but a relationship. It's a covenant. It's almost like a marriage, in a sense. Um, For instance, Valentine's Day is coming up, and so... Uh, those of you who will be celebrating that day, who uh, might be in a relationship, are, uh, might be excited about doing something special or different for your significant other. But I don't live my life wondering if I am not doing enough for Chrissy, uh, my wife, if I have not somehow earned enough of her love for this week. It's not as if Chrissy keeps a notebook of every single thing I do that's good and assigns points to that. Um, We might make jokes about things like that, but that's actually really, really a scary way to live, isn't it? If we enter into any sort of relationship with this expectation that if I start slipping up or if I don't keep with some level of intensity or commitment that it's going to just poof and go away, that's no way to live. In the same vein, our relationship with God is just that, is a relationship. And it's a relationship that he initiated for us and with us, not our initiation, his. And so while obviously I would not have a really great, healthy marriage relationship if I didn't do things for Chrissy and thought of her and cared for her and whatnot, that is the fruit of the relationship that exists It is not what establishes and maintains that relationship. And so in the same way, you and I have a relationship with God because of Jesus, because of God's love for us first, and after that fact, our response, not out of obligation or guilt or fear, but actually out of love and excitement, out of wooing and wanting more of him, is to respond with our lives and our lives made up of our actions and practices, which is what we're talking about here. Last week, then, we started unpacking kind of a third um, hint. At least we named it for the first time last week. It was present in the other weeks as well. And it's the question of identity. Uh, Scripture talks about us as the people of God, in some very unique ways. But one of the ways Scripture talks about us as the people of God is as this countercultural movement or having this counter-identity within the world. And that counter-identity is made up not of ideological statements about God, but rather of behavior and of actions, of rhythms and disciplines, the very things we've been talking about. So in the same way, thinking about marriage, we could almost say um, in another way, Chrissy you know, doesn't want me only to be a person who does these romantic or good things. Um, but, well, let me rephrase that. She doesn't just want them to happen. She wants me to be the type of person who would do such things. She doesn't want only me to love her and to care for her in X situation or Y situation. She wants to know that if the for worse part of the for better popped up, that I would be the type of person who would want to still care for her, to still love her, to still find her beautiful, to still delight in her, regardless. In the same way, what scripture wants to do with us, what God wants to do in us and with us, is that these practices, these things that we're talking about, they're not not—they're not only prescriptions, right? We, we've situated this as sort of each week we've talked about the world, we've talked about the gospel. We're going to do that one more time this week. And we've done that intentionally because I want you to understand this idea that We're not just saying, ooh, spiritual disciplines, that's a good thing. Let's learn about them. Let's go do them. Let's go home. No, I want to talk about why we need them and why our culture is actually constituting us as something else. And so these practices are, in fact, God's counter-remedy to them. But we don't only want to think about them in such a practical, utilitarian way that we don't see the beauty in what they do as a whole in us and through us. For instance, tomorrow, some of us are going to be celebrating a day of prayer and fasting, and we'd love to call the church to do that as well. Um, Again, as already announced, you'll find some uh, kind of ways of thinking about that. If you're thinking about doing it tomorrow, download that document today just to read over it. Um, I hope it would be helpful for you to understand maybe how you might be able to move into that. It's got some tips, especially for those who, uh, for whom fasting is scary or actually is something you can't do, uh, whether that's physically or family, young kids, whatever. But the reason I point that out is because, again, what's the difference between, hey, a people who fast and the kind of people who gather together to seek God's face regularly over time. Not just someone who seeks solitude and Sabbath, like we talked about in week two, but the kind of people who order our lives such that the continual pursuit of more is not the primary value of what we have And the priority of that time away, that space, that rest, that time to seek God is not, ooh, that's a block of empty time in my otherwise full schedule that because I don't have anything else to do, I'll put God in there. But rather, it is a part of who we are. That's the dream. That's the goal. This idea that we would be a people who maybe even in our world would be known less just by our morality, As good as that is, I think that's often how we reduce Christianity to in the world, that hypothetically Christians are supposed to be nice and good people who go to church, and that's what people who are not Christians in our world think about us. What if there was more difference there? What if even the way we lived our lives was a testimony to the rest of the world about what we think things should be like in light of a relationship with God? Anyway, that's where we've been. That is what I hope you're picking up in all of this. Each week we have, uh, in lieu of a scripture, we've been preparing our hearts just as a reminder again that this is God's work in, in us. We talk about all of these practices. We're rolling out a lot of hopefully practical application for you to go home and think about your schedules and your lives and the rhythms of your lives. Some of these are big, hard, stressful things to think about in an already overstuffed world. So it's nice, to be honest, it's been nice to my soul, much less I hope yours as well, that we would remember that it is God who's doing that in us and he joins us in it. So would you, one more time, prepare your hearts with me. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Lord Jesus, you are the vine and we are the branches. We long to remain in you. If we bear any good fruit, no matter how small, it is because of your promise that you will remain in us. We trust in you and not in our own work or striving to draw closer to God. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, may it be true. Not just one more time, may it be true, may it always be true, but in this moment, especially as we hear from your word and from your church what has happened over many centuries and many times, that we would receive that as... An invitation to more, not a burden to shoulder. You said, "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give them rest." Lord God, that rest was not Netflix. That rest was not a vacation. That rest was you and your work in our hearts, which should involve actual rest and. So, God, even just in this moment of quiet, be near to us. Amen. All right. So, again, before we talk about world and gospel, I want to keep going with this theme of where we've been. We started uh, week two with a list of a couple of different of these intentional practices. And we talked about prayer, solitude, silence, meditation, and study, rest, and Sabbath as the counter, again, to this world of busyness and of anxiety, this world that says we must keep doing more, we must keep running, because if we don't keep running... The proverbial joke about you don't have to run faster than a bear, you have to run faster than your slowest friend um, when being chased by the bear is actually true. And as much as we don't like that joke, that's actually how we often live. And so we talked about how our culture pushes us in that direction and Jesus offers another way. And we talked about last week... Fasting, tithing, giving, service, repentance, obedience, these things that cost us something, um, but that in the practice of not living like we are again, hoarding all the resources and all the stuff we can to bolster us up and to prepare us for the day someone's going to come after us, we again live this life that we have taken our hands not off the wheel in a a laissez-faire, who cares, Carrie Underwood way, but in a reality of um, trusting that God is shaping me to be the type of person who can rely on him all the time and who can remember that I have enough because I have God. I have enough in my job, in my work, in my family, in whatever. There is a sense of contentment that can be there. Again, not an unfounded contentment, but a real one because we are connected with the one who owns all things. Both of these lists um, are not things you're going to find in Scripture in the sense of them all being together. The concept of these intentional practices is something that the Christian church has gleaned from Scripture um, in lots of different places. You will often find prayer and fasting together, for instance, a couple of other pairings. But as you've seen, what, what, what we've done in the last couple of weeks is to group them more according to how they answer certain issues in the culture. And so, as I said, ideas of uh, grouping here, ideas of um, busyness and overwork. Well, this is our third list, feasting and hospitality, celebration and community, worship, gratitude. In some respects, it doesn't look like these other two. And I want to tell you why it doesn't necessarily look like these other two, and that's where I want to get into talking about the world and the gospel. I'm going to throw a scary philosophical term up there, Gnostic dualism. A few of you chuckled because you have philosophy minors and you're excited to finally use what you've never used in 20 years. Others of you, your eyes rolled in the back of your head and you're like this close to checking out. It's okay. Believe it or not, Jimmy has actually been referring to this same family of concepts actually a lot in our 930 hour. For those of you who have been attending the creation and evolution discussions that we had for four weeks there when he's been talking about the upstairs and the downstairs are two-floor life. If not, that podcast is available online. Love for you to check that out. Throughout much of history, there has been one of those philosophies that has really dictated a lot of how we live our lives without ever realizing a name like Gnostic dualism. But it's the idea that We fundamentally deep down inside what we are is spirit or soul or some version of that concept. And there is a separation between that, who we really are, and this kind of biological flesh puppet, meat bag that we inhabit, this body that we have. This is actually, as much as it sounds sci-fi, is actually a very old idea. Um, It began in multiple places. Um, It's why it's been so pervasive, because it's not solely one culture's idea. The Greeks wrote about it a lot. Um, Socrates and Aristotle and Plato talk about this idea of the actual core of someone being one thing, and then the body they inhabit being something else. A number of Eastern philosophies and religions also very much emphasize this idea that there is some ontological separation between who we actually are and the world that we inhabit. And without getting into too much history, this has played itself out in a number of different ways, most of which are still present today. On an Eastern side of things, um, it often plays itself out in very Buddhist understandings of life. This belief that the self is important. But to kind of to, to be enlightened, to, to grow, to advance, to be wise and holy even requires a downplaying, a pushing back, a distancing of oneself from any ideas of the flesh, both pleasure, but also deeply of suffering, being able to accept a world of suffering and so to kind of have this stoic distance from it. And I use that word stoic, again, Greek. Another way it's played itself out in many, many cultures and places has been this idea that the the self internally, well, that is the spiritual part of me. That's That's the compartmentalized view. And so if that's the spiritual part of me that God or the gods care about, I can do whatever I want with the flesh bag that I'm in. And so there were a number of movements back in Greece that have brought themselves all the way up to today that engage the idea that I can be a spiritual person, but also live physically however I want. Why? Because that is apart. This is exactly, by the way, how we engage sexuality many times today in our culture is this belief that I am one thing, but then also that what I do is simply a bunch of impulses and chemicals and things that I'm biologically attuned to do. It also, and unfortunately, this is a conversation for another day, but I think it's actually worth saying here is perhaps one of the biggest complicating factors in our discussions about um, same-sex attraction and homosexuality and the transgender movement as well, is this struggle between who am I? Are these two sides one thing or are they two things? We don't know how to deal with this. This even gets very much so, I'm sorry, I have a very sore throat today, into um, questions of science that we are very much dealing with today. AI, how much does one have to think to be before they are considered human or at least alive? Again, you'd say that would be a science fiction movie, except that billions upon billions are being spent today. In fact, I ran across an amazing, mind-blowing concept just the other day. There's a new AI uh, software out right now that helps to um, using artificial intelligence to write essays and and different things like that. An entire third of a California um, engineering school that I will not name, um, an entire third of their class was found to have used artificial intelligence to write their final exam essays this past um, semester. the teachers came this close to not catching it at all because it was not just one to the other. This idea of what actually constitutes life and meaning, especially in a digital and scientific world, is a big deal. How does any of that play itself out into spiritual disciplines and intentional practices? Here's what I think it is. We are a people who, when you look back on the history of Christianity, when you look back on the history of spirituality as a whole, we are actually, whether we like it or not, very tempted, consciously and unconsciously, to fall into this dualist perspective. I think for most of us, we don't do it for like hedonistic reasons or AI reasons. I think most of us fall into it just from the daily grind of something that happens on Sunday versus something that happens throughout the rest of the week. We live very compartmentalized lives anyway in much of the rest of our life. But look at these practices. Prayer, solitude, silence, meditation, Sabbath, fasting, service, repentance, obedience. I think it's very possible if I only had two weeks and showed you two lists and not the third one today, I think it's very possible that we could leave this place and lean into the idea of intentional practices specifically from a dualistic place. It could be totally possible to leave and go, all the practices I need to do, all the things I need to lean into, happens somewhere in this heart-soul thing. Prayer, fasting, denying myself, repentance, obedience. Here's the thing. Scripture actually completely refutes this. It's actually one of the things that it's dealt with most in the New Testament because in the New Testament we do see what is effectively a train wreck of Greek ideals and Hebrew ideals, the Hebrews were actually a very non-compartmentalized, holistic people. They saw themselves as body and soul, one thing that God had made. Even those, when we talk about dying and going to heaven to being with Jesus, what what, what do we say at the end of the Apostles' Creed? That we look forward to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This idea that we have always been and we're always supposed to be real fleshy people who also communed with God, that is the hope and truth of Genesis. And that's what the whole Bible is about. And so when these things crashed in together, we were never meant to be a people who were only sad. We were never meant to be a people who were only meditative. We were never meant to be only a people who were, to be honest, insert your worst stereotype of the kind of spiritual, monkish, Puritan person that you think about. And I even am sad about that because realistically, in the grand scheme of Christian history, the monastic movements we have actually were some of the most beautiful artistic things we have. There are Puritan poets that would blow your socks off with how beautiful and soaring their hymns were about God's world and also about just regular physical things like life and food. What I'm saying is this. If we have a fully-orbed theology, if we want to move into where God wants to constitute us as a people, we will not only be a people who are doing what can easily be compartmentalized as spiritual things. We will be a people who feast. We will be a people who celebrate, who have community, who worship together, who have a life spent of gratitude. And this is all over the Bible. I could take you to so many places One of the reasons it's so hard to decide is because the ancient Israelites, besides the Sabbath, had 22 days specified for feasting. When you add in prep time and travel time and all the other things, this means Israel literally spent almost a third of their lives in holiday mode. Some of you were like, yeah. Now, now, I mean, some of that is funny, right? But again, let's apply this world gospel thing to it. Now, I'm not saying that we need to spend, you know, a third of our lives in joint in-town called feasting, although that would be fun. But I am saying, like, what did it take from them to live lives like that? How much more productive could Israel have been Have you ever wondered why Israel stays so small? I mean, they literally have the God of the universe fighting their battles for them. You'd think in the grand scheme of the rest of history that Israel had the kind of traction that they could have gotten to be a lot bigger and a lot more powerful than they were. Why? Why? That wasn't the point. That wasn't what God wanted for them. They were constituted as a completely different people. Why was this feasting so important? Obviously, we could unpack any one of the seven feasts or we could look at the the various things that happen in Sabbath. But this is Dr. Christine Pohl writing in her book, Living Into Community. In Scripture... Remembering falsely or forgetting entirely is often associated with an absence of gratitude. One of the saddest judgments passed on people in Scripture is that they didn't remember God's steadfast love. I don't think we're going to find feasting on most lists of spiritual disciplines that we would come up with. But I think, based on the testimony of Scripture, that celebration, feasting, public expressions of gratitude that are not fake and artificial, this isn't Hallmark Valentine's Day, this is actual real community happening together, reflecting on God's goodness and love in the people he has made. This has to be a marker of who we are. I mean, I believe this is actually why just as much, you know, Jesus is actually criticized by the Pharisees in the New Testament for um, being a drunkard and a partier, specifically because of all the parties he went to. Usually, we twist that or interpret it to mean, oh, he loved spending time with non Christians. He loved spending time with uh, you know, the herding and, and went to where the people were. That is all completely true. But I also think Jesus just loved to laugh and to celebrate real life, to be able to celebrate what God was actually doing in the world and with people. And those things were right and good to celebrate. I have a friend who uh, made a comment once that really stuck with me for some reason. He and his wife always keep a bottle of champagne in their refrigerator. Always. They actually don't drink a lot, but, but he said they always do because they never know when they're going to receive good news. They never know when they're going to receive good news, especially if a friend comes over and delivers that news per, you know, in, in person. They said they want to be the kind of people for whom being able to celebrate and be thankful, to name it and remember it and to praise God for it, is who they are. They don't want to hear good news and say, oh, that's great, let's plan a party later when it feels a little artificial and when people can't actually make it because we're all overstressed anyway. No, this idea of... Being able to thank God for what is good has to be a practice that we feel and live in. Now, a lot of people might say, oh, this is just the same as the people who are saying, oh, just have a gratitude journal, be thankful. That's a good idea, right? And there are lots of non-Christians who have similar principles. But I think the, very, the, the big difference for us is, is what, who are we being thankful to? Are we just kind of reminding ourselves of good vibes? Are we feeling better about life? I think that is what people criticize Christians for, for feeling like we we're just kind of lost in the clouds and we have our fingers in our ears. We don't see how bad the world is. And so we get together every Sunday and we do a little happy, clappy, happy, happy because Jesus came into my heart type deal. But instead, being able to have a direction for that thanks, being able to point to why we can live, even in a world of suffering, a life of goodness, a life of good enoughness, where even when the things are broken in our world, that we seek God and remembering who he is. This is all over scripture. And I do want to emphasize one other thing as well, and that's the idea that, I have put community, hospitality, worship in there. Worship, one, because our worship, even even our worship that is lament, is a God direction. Even in lament, we are thanking God for hearing us. Even in our anger, sometimes with him and for him and to him, we are saying, you are there and you are listening. And so, uh, we feel this. But we also do it together. Another author I love, um, and if there is one book on this whole subject that I would want all of you to read, Tish Harrison Warren wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. She says this, Christian friendships are call and response friendships. We tell each other over and over, back and forth, the truth of who we are and who God is. On dinners and on walks, dropping off soup when someone is sick, And in prayer over the phone, we speak the good news to each other and we become good news to every other. There is a sense in which as we, as the people of God, are a people who are thankful, who are celebrative of what God has and will do. And as this is a public thing, not a showy thing, not something that is disingenuous, but is a real practice of who we are. We are preaching the gospel to one another. Church is not, only, is, is, is not a slog. It is not a burden. It becomes a family reunion. Getting together with other people, using words like living life together, doesn't become, oh, I'm part of this small group. Can I make small group this week? I confess to my small group almost every week. I tell Chrissy about a couple hours before small group that um, I really don't want to go tonight. I'm tired. No offense, guys. Um, (laughs) I'm just tired. It's hard getting together with people. We don't live lives that are built around being able to do this. I mean, think about it, all right? You, I don't know about you, but this is, Generationally, this, this, is, this is coming up more and more and more. Some of you this isn't true of, but by the time I was 30, I had lived in 11 different places. The concept of friends for me moved every couple of years. It's hard for me to look back and say, where am I from? I joked with Pat Freeman the other day. Have I been here long enough to call myself an Atlantan yet? Like, like what, is, what does that look like? Our whole culture is based around the fact that you can work wherever and do whatever, and if you actually want to advance in your career, you got to bounce around a lot. Now I realize those are complicated conversations that take a lot more Nuance than being able to talk in front of you here. But I believe that as we are a people who value one another and our histories, who value what God has done, I mean, I've never experienced this, but I love sitting around with some of our elders who can sit here and go, yeah, in town used to be like that and now it's like this or I remember when that happened or I changed that person's diapers or, or, or whatever. There's a real history of what God does in a place like this that I will never know if I am a member of a new church every two years because something changes. There are things that happen in someone's life because long Christian friendships are formed and tested and then brought Again, to the forefront. We don't think about these things as disciplines, but they are. Every week we've ended with a prayer. I put this scripture up taste and see that the Lord is good, but I actually like to draw your attention back as we move to the table to the scripture i placed in our bulletin in jeremiah 31 the israelites have seemingly nothing to be thankful for they have been in exile some of them very recently still at this point the exile is likely only a year or two old this means some of them still have like scent memories of smelling the city burning. This isn't some esoteric exile idea. This is real. And on one hand, fake prophets of God have come and said lies that, oh, we're going to get back and God's going to beat the bad guys and it's going to be awesome. And then Jeremiah has come, stepped in and said, No, we're going to be like this for a long time. Most of you will not survive to see good again. But then he gives them a vision of what will be. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance. The young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Every time you meet together in Christian fellowship with one another, you can name what is good about what God is doing even as you cry out in in tears about what is bad. Every time you can bless food not as a perfunctory blessing without the G, before, uh, before a meal, but you actually recognize that lots of people don't have this and God's provided it for you and you get to wake up the next morning and get it again. We are Prefiguring, we are living out an echo, a foretaste, a prologue of what will one day be. The countercultural thing we have to show this world is that God is at work in his people, not in a culture war, not in buildings made by human hands and not ultimately even in programs or the things that we're really, really excited about, but in the lives of everyday people who are remembering that the Lord is good, who are sharing that together, who are repenting together and moving forward together, and who together are an echo ahead of time for what God will one day do when he makes all things new. That is the vision God has for your life and for mine. Your life has great meaning. It has meaning in your work. It has meaning in your relationships. But it has meaning because you are a thunderclap that reverberates throughout time for the faithfulness of the Lord.